Checking, checking. Is this mic on? <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim, and I apologize for blowing out your eardrums there. My name is Marshall, and I will not apologize because I didn't blow anyone's ears out. There you go. Yet. No, I, I don't think I will. All right, man. Well, today we're talking about a few things. Yeah, I, I'm going to do my best not to just race to the end. Yeah, that's fair. Because the last topic is one of my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so so today's today's episode is kind of, there's a, so some, there's a tying up of a loose end. Mm-hmm. There's a discussion about a thing that's kind of just happening under the surface and will continue to happen. And then we get to talk about a really, really important book. So that's kind yeah. of our episode. There's no like unifying theme. Right. I thought I tried to kind of in my mind connect the three. There's not. It's just no. Chronology. It's just what it <laughs> they is. They all land on a similar place in the timeline. Yeah. So so the first do it. Yeah, the first the first thing we're gonna talk about this morning. Well, I guess it's morning for us. I don't know if it's morning for those who are listening, but we're gonna talk about the Huguenots. And and the Huguenots are an interesting group when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. Most I'm going to assume that most of the people listening have no idea who the Huguenots were. Yeah, aren't aren't they the uh, football team in Toronto? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That's the Argonauts, and yeah. I would say most people listening also have no clue who they are. <laughs> they have this vague recollection. Oh yeah, right, right. Canadian football. Yeah, for our American listeners, I I know very few. Canadians who actually pay any attention to Canadian football and we're all NFL right. fans. Like, I don't know how the CFL is profitable. I, I don't. I honestly don't. I think it's supported by the government. It must like everything else up here, right? It, it's kind of <laughs> like that same rule where you have to have a certain number of Canadian artists on the radio, right? So right. that it doesn't just become American radio, right? I think I think the same sort of preservation of Canadian culture right. law <laughs> pays CFL players, maybe. Well, maybe the Toronto Argonauts are supported by the government, but the Huguenots were not supported Ooh, by the French government. That's a, cl- that's a great segue. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it might seem strange that even though arguably the most famous reformer, John Calvin, was French, mm-hmm. there is very little evidence of Protestantism in France, period. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a personal story just briefly to just kind of set this up. I did an exchange trip to France when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And my dad, before I went, was like, hey, you should really find a church to go to while you're there. Mm -hmm. And I was in a city called Nantes, which is actually in the part of France that, that when there were Protestants there, was the most Protestant. And when I asked about a church that was not Catholic, not only did they not know of one existing in the city of about a million people. Sure. They they colloquially referred to it just simply as la culte, mm-hmm. the cult. Yeah. There was there was no evangelical church presence. Period. But that was not always the case. There was a time when there were the Huguenots. But there like you said there weren't many, which is why that Frenchman lived in Geneva. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, he well he fled. Yeah. 
yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And so, like, France had this weird on again, off again thing with the Pope. I mean, like, if you go back a number of episodes, they had their own special French Pope for a while because they didn't work down with Rome. Pope, that's a great idea. <laughs> I want one. I want one. <laughs> yeah, they had the what was called the Avignon Papacy. Um, there was a movement within France, even from within the Roman Catholic Church, to say, we don't want Italian popes telling French churches how to operate. Yeah. And that was really one of the big motives behind those who were reforming. It wasn't even so much theological as it was nationalistic. Not to say that there weren't people with genuine theological convictions. Right. But it was very much the, I'm French and I know what's best for me and don't tell me what to do. Very Henry. Very Henry in its own, in its own way, yes. Um, and so these people became known as the Huguenots, uh, named after essentially a, a Protestant nobleman, but they didn't call themselves that. They just called themselves Reformed, uh, Reformé. But uh, in any case, there's a great deal of friction between them and the crown, a lot of hostility. It begins to pick up steam. They figure at one point up to 10% of the French population were Protestants which is was significant because France actually had millions and millions of people living there right. at the time. Yeah. Um, the one thing we forget about European nations is a lot of them had comparable populations then as, as they do now, which is surprising. Um, but while they're kind of working through this, it starts to spark into war. And actually they have wars, like multiple wars, uh, civil wars that end up happening. And... There's these massacres that happen and, you know, the local Catholic population will just get real worked up and just run out and ex execute all the Huguenots they can find. Um, and you know what? Sometimes the Huguenots do this too. They, what they tended to do was break into monasteries and, uh, and kill the monks and priests. It was kind of their, their go-to move. Um, there's one of these slaughters, though, that is notable that we have to talk about is known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And the reasons that sparked this are like super convoluted and political, and we don't need to get into it. But the death toll was significant. It started in Paris, and then it was repeated in other cities. Now, you and I have had our experience with Roman Catholic historians, mm -hmm. and they're kind of shading of the events coloring coloring yeah. of the events sure yeah so so the roman catholic apologists they argued that this was a very small number who were killed only maybe a few thousand that that's that's their downplaying it's only a, it was a couple thousand couple thousand right it's just right. you know it's an oopsie it's a new a couple thousand people slaughtered in the streets oops so I grew up in a town of a thousand. Right. <laughs> That'd be like waking up and everyone's dead. Mm -hmm. The whole town. Yeah. And then some. Yeah. Uh, or or everyone's dead a couple times over. Right. <laughs> if that's a it. few thousand. <laughs> yeah. So one of the huge Shout out to Mansfield, Arkansas. Shout out Mansfield. Nice. Um, one of the Huguenots who lived through it, Duke DeSully, reported that it was more like 70,000. The truth of the matter probably lies somewhere in the middle. Most historians are like ten to twenty thousand people, like it in a in a moment, right? Like that's that's huge. That's a that's a huge number of people. That's like the Spanish Inquisitions in a day, 
Mm-hmm. That's like, and so it's very significant that way. So you're wondering why there aren't a lot of Protestants in France. Um, that's why the the Pope was so pleased with it. He literally gave the King of France a medal. <laughs> <laughs> he gave him a medal with an image struck on it of an angel killing Protestants, with the inscription <laughs> "Slaughter of the Huguenots, 1572." Wow. <laughs> I just yeah, as a as a priest. Like there should be something of receiving that <laughs> that causes you to be like, "Yeah, I'm I'm being honored for my work." And then you look at it mm. and you go, "I think I'm being condemned." <laughs> <laughs> I just can you imagine and and like and songs were written in celebration of this slaughter it was it was bad so naturally this wasn't well received by the french protestants who by this time had significant holdings and forces kind of in the western part of france and so they just keep fighting these wars until the edict of nantes is passed in 1598 so we're getting right up to the 1600s here it'll it essentially allowed for protestants to practice their faith in certain areas you can be a protestant over there not over here over there and that is good for a while but it begins to not really be enforced and future kings of france eventually will just overturn it and they enforce a system of persecution they do something called the dragonades where they would just send um armed soldiers into people's houses and at gunpoint convert to catholicism if they don't they kill them And so while there was at one point maybe as many as two million Protestants in France, um, some of the kings of France bragged that they'd brought that number down to, you know, a handful of thousands. Um, And so over the next century, essentially almost all the French Protestants flee. They go to Switzerland, they go to Germany, they go to the Netherlands, they go to England, they go to the 13 colonies, and they come to this part of the world. They come to Canada, or what would become Canada. Yeah, I when you said the thirteen colonies, and then you said this part of the world. Yeah, I was thrown for a second. Okay, yeah. Well, we're not. We weren't part of the thirteen colonies. Well, I I know, but we were colonies, but we were my, just in my mind, upper and lower Canada. Um, yeah. So, so this is where the concept of religious freedom becomes so entrenched in the Americas. Yes. Right, and, and that's important to note mm. because our our battle in North America for religious freedom and and the way we hold it with such esteem has been passed down through from generation to generation this is why mm-hmm. yeah yeah this isn't just you know the government didn't want us practicing religion um or it was difficult or we just wanted to break out and do our own thing and not have other people around or trying to build a new empire. This is freedom of religion in, in the North American continent mm-hmm. comes about by people running for their lives. Exactly, yeah. Interestingly enough, I did a little bit of um, genealogy work, did the whole ancestry yeah. thing, and turns out some of my ancestors were French Huguenots who, uh, who fled to initially to Vermont, and then they kind of moved into Quebec. Is that why you speak French so well? <laughs> I think it has to do with the schooling when it, as a child, but it's been a while, so I'm not going to do it on the air. It could be in the, the genes. I'm not going to do it on the air. Um, okay, at the same time, there is another 
movement, but it's a movement within a movement in England. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to find as the English Reformation becomes more and more of a reformation, it's kind of like a Russian stacking doll thing. <laughs> I like that analogy. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, well, think of it this way, right? Like initially what Luther was seeking to do and what Zwingli was seeking to do was to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within. Mm-hmm. And so these folks, who we will call the Puritans, the Puritans are within the Church of England. Right. And they're wanting to continue moving this process of reformation along, mm-hmm. right? And this, this is important because this is why, you know, not everyone in England, the States, Canada, Australia, etc., are Anglicans. Right. Right? Like, this is why all people, like, we don't have everyone of British ancestry being a part of the Church of England, right? Because of what's going to happen, and it's going to happen a little later than than what we're talking about this episode, maybe, but they want to change things from within. And like we'd said before, the English Church was just real slow on the Reformation. They Mm -hmm. they, they dragged their feet a little bit. (laughs) Well, it, it could also be because they were expelled, slaughtered, forced back into Catholicism, (laughs) and then pulled back. They got a a lot of false starts. That's true. Right? I I don't know that we can just blame them on being slow. I think think at some point there would be, like, in, in like, if there was a way to do sort of, like, parallel times, Mm. we could be sitting here blaming them for being slow while there's some guy in shackles and chains being, like, doing what I can do here, bud. Yeah, fair enough. Good point. Good point. Um, so, so while someone else is running from spears and hordes yes. of cardinals chasing him yeah. to the, as he swims the English Channel, <laughs> oh, man. yeah. So, so, anyways, as we talked about previously, a lot of these guys, the Protestants, had fled the country during Bloody Mary, come back under Elizabeth, and while they'd been away, they'd been rubbing shoulders with mm-hmm. guys like Calvin on the continent. And so they come back, and they're just not totally down with the order and the structure of the Anglican Church. Yeah, and, and this this concept of a group of people that says you're not reform you're not reforming enough. Mm. There's more that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Where a principal group said we're going to go this far, and someone else said no, there's more to go. This goes all the way back to Luther. Yeah. Right. Like even in Luther's camps, there were people that were saying there's more to be done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Zwingli and mm-hmm. Luther didn't agree because there was more to be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Conrad Grable. Mm-hmm. There's more to be done. Right. Mm-hmm. People pushed against Zwingli. You're not going far enough. Right. Right. We just see that in maybe we see it in a different way uh, because they're English. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have greater connection to mm-hmm. their history personally mm-hmm. that we can read the puritans yeah uh but this is just that happening on a different level right right well i find it interesting though that like initially so like the puritans even when we hear that word for a lot of people they might carry with it a, a negative connotation and maybe that's partially warranted and we'll talk about kind of the mm-hmm. the their legacy in in the, they got in ups the and colonies downs. yeah yeah sure but initially, like what they were actually advocating for 
was actually a degree of freedom in worship from the the strict rules of the Anglican Church. So like they would want to like the liturgy of a Church of England service was so burdensome that they're like, we got to skip some of the stuff so that we can actually preach. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no room for a sermon here. We've got so many ups and downs and prayers and this and that and different things that we have to do, boxes we have to check. So we're going to start skipping some of that. Which is Zwinglian of them? Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. Um, not bowing or making the sign of the cross. One of the big things, they didn't want to wear those. It's called the, the surplice. It's like that white priestly robe that Anglican ministers still wear often. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, they, they really didn't want to wear that. There's this great meme that goes around all the time. It just sort of like has its seasons when it <laughs> pops up. And it's the actual shot is from the filming of The Lord of the Rings. Okay. And you have, uh, I, I think it's Sauron. Yeah, and no, uh, Sa- Saruman, Saruman and Gandalf. Yeah, together and in Jackson. in their costumes, right? And then Peter Jackson standing there in his shorts and his t-shirt, or like shorts <laughs> and a hoodie with his headphones, whatever it is, right? Yeah, and it says Baptist pastors hanging out with their Anglican friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's <laughs> so true. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> there's something to the robes and everything. Sure, sure. Uh, that are that are their own kind of cool. Yeah, but. Yeah. Thank you, Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, the bigger issue is going to be church government. Um, we discussed in the John Knox episode what Presbyterian polity church organization is mm-hmm. like. A lot of the guys in England are advocating for that kind of model. Some are even going more extreme to congregationalism, mm-hmm. which is going to be a precursor for the Baptists, but not yet. We're not there yet. Not yet. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so so there, there is this happening, but there's all this writing back and forth, and there's a bit of name calling and people writing pamphlets and that sort of thing, but it's actually relatively bloodless, which is nice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> for once, right? Like, can we, just, can we just for a minute just say, you know, these guys are disagreeing and not killing each other, which is, like, pretty cool. Um, yeah, you just think... Think back, listener, about the worst of congregational meetings that you've been a part of. <laughs> the worst of business meetings where people have been have done things that have caused you to go, wow, what is the state of our church? Mm. And imagine being at an elders meeting where they're like high-fiving success. No one died. <laughs> Nobody, Nobody's dying, which is pretty awesome. And, and in this case, it's like, there wasn't a village slaughtered, right? <laughs> like, because it's been in the hundreds, or as we said earlier this morning, a thousand, you know, thousands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, seriously. Yeah. Thousands. It's, it's incredible that it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's not to say that there wasn't all sorts of other conflicts going on and revolutions and wars and things like that. But, but this particular business meeting took place without bloodshed. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, as this, you know, Elizabeth is really resistant to moving this thing too far forward. And, you know, different members of of uh, the monarchy are kind of more or less favorable. James I comes to power in the early 1600s. Oh, James. Oh, Jamie boy. Um, and he was actually fairly lenient with the Puritans. Um, yeah. He, he gives space for differing convictions. So he comes over from Scotland. So he's been hanging out with Presby's the whole time. Right. 
not exactly loving the Presbyterian model. No. Uh, because he's not the head of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like he's, hey, he's a bit biased. Like, let's be honest. You know what's cool over in England? Yeah. You get to be the Pope there, essentially. You know, you know like when you're a kid and you go over to your friend's house yeah. and they have this thing mm. and you're like, mom and dad, mm-hmm. they got this thing. That's the way I feel James was in Scotland, mm. right? Like he's sitting there. Things are going well for him. Mm-hmm. He has nothing to complain about. Yeah. In England, mm-hmm. the monarch is also the head of the church. Yeah. Hey, they got this thing. Mm-hmm. It's Why it, can't we have the thing? It reminds me a bit like my, like I mentioned that I did an exchange when I was a kid. My mom still takes in exchange students yeah. from foreign countries. And the reality is that like a lot of these kids <laughs> who come and stay in Canada are like super wealthy back home. Yeah. Like like from like Brazil and Argentina and mm-hmm. like some of these other like South American countries, they're like gated estate, multiple maids, cooks, security guards, like super wealthy. And they come to Canada and they're like, I got to make my own bed. Yeah. I, I got to put cereal in my own bowl. <laughs> right. And so like James is like sitting there in this Presbyterian Scotland being like what you're saying that like those guys get to decide what happens in the church. Like that there's right. They, they have this committee. It's like back home, like. I, I'm my word is law. I get to decide everything. Everything. <laughs> I don't even I don't even really care that much what happens with it. I just want to decide. <laughs> yeah. So he's like he's probably he's he's like that uh, exchange student who's like pumped to go home because they can start bossing the maids around again. Right. Because um, some of them tried to boss my mom around and it did not go well for them. <laughs> Anyways, so um, anyway, so but James James is relatively lenient. He's pretty open minded considering his his circumstances and some of the bishops kind of are are more cruel to the dissenters others are are pretty lenient right they just Mm -hmm. kind of let individual ministers skip the parts of the common book of prayer that they're not comfortable with yeah james james kind of walks the fence a bit Mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally and so like for this reason most of the puritans at this time they were content to be part of the church of england that's going to change, mm-hmm. but that's for a future episode. Because first, we have to talk about King James. Because King James of England isn't best remembered for his religious tolerance. No. He's remembered for a book. Yeah. For a translation of the Bible. The, yeah. The King James Bible. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of it. In my opinion... The single most influential book ever printed in English language, period. Hard stop. I, I think it would be hard to make that statement with the modifier of the English language. Yeah, English language. I, I, I think you don't need the modifier. Oh, yeah. yeah actually, you're probably right. Because, because it has sold in the billions. Mm. The next book down, oh, man, I didn't write this down. I'm going to get it wrong. The The contemplations of... Mao. Oh yeah, what is yeah, 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 I, yeah. his full name? I had it and then I lost it. Mm-hmm. Uh, has sold in the millions, mm. like hundreds of millions. Sure, but millions. Third, on the list. You want to take a pop? No idea. The Harry Potter series. Really? That's awesome. <laughs> 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 what an interesting mix. It is. <laughs> you got the Bible, uh, communism, and Harry Potter. Which, you know, there are certain, there's, 
there are certain circles where you know both harry potter and the <laughs> the reflections of mao Zedong or whatever his name is are equally demonic <laughs> yeah yep uh so james <sighs> james cruising down the road mm. some cruising down the some road. puritans come up to him and they're like hey i was on my way to nail these 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 on the church door but i'll just hand them to you that's not actually the case. They hand him the letter. Sure, yeah, yeah. But in my mind, it's very Lutheran. Very, mm. here are the things that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Apparently, like, allegedly signed by, like, up to a thousand right. ministers. Right, yeah. Um. So he decides to call a council to talk about these things. Mm. Doesn't invite the Puritans to day one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for this i'm gonna talk to some other people about it <laughs> right right oh you you want to be heard all right well we're we are gonna have the meeting you get no representation yeah. we're gonna have a meeting to determine whether or not we should listen to you right we'll, we'll keep you posted <laughs> <laughs> so day two meeting gets called to order mm-hmm. apparently james doesn't have like the most commanding of voices mm, okay he calls the thing to order and a guy I, I didn't bring the book with me a guy stands up and says excuse me i'd like to be recognized basically cutting off the king mm. everyone falls to a hush and he says we need a new bible translation mm. that's the biggest conflict in his opinion between the Anglicans and the Puritans, Mm. right? So he calls for a new translation. The Anglicans instantly rebuttal. No way. Right. This is is not going to be a thing. James responds, there's not a perfect English translation. Um, There's always, there's a problem with all of them, Mm -hmm. which I find a, a really great statement from King James. Yes. Because uh, it just shows his knowledge of ancient biblical languages and the amount of time that he spends reading his Bible in those ancient languages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which <coughs> I'm sure took more time than ruling England, right? <laughs> For him to be able to make a statement like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's translational problems with all of them. Mm-hmm. And the worst of all is the Geneva Bible. Right. So at this point, there are a couple of English translations. Sure. Uh, the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible is what's being used by the Anglicans at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so Henry insists on there being an English translation. He calls it the Great Bible. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the Bishop's Bible that comes along later. The Geneva Bible <laughs> takes place on the mainland. Right. Europe. I'm pointing because everyone can see that this <laughs> direction is Europe. Yes. <coughs> over uh, there. Yep. Uh, over there. Uh, interest. I, I don't know how many people sit and think about biblical translations and their etymologies and stuff like that, but mm. that in English translation would be called the Geneva Bible. Yeah, I've always found it interesting. Is really fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were running for their lives. They were in exile, essentially, in right. Geneva. Yeah, And so they're in Geneva with John Calvin and crew and writing this English translation of the Bible uh, where they can do it with more safety. Sure. And 
so the Puritans, like the Geneva Bible, the Anglicans, like the Bishop's Bible. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, here's where that comes, right? The, the thing is, when you're m- translating languages, you have to make decisions. Of course, yeah. There, there is at a very rudimentary level of language uh, and, and, and translation where you have things like this is, in English it's blue, in Spanish it's azul. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, and you have those one for ones. Sure. That runs out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you get into a lot of concepts mm-hmm. because language is about conveying thought mm-hmm. and abstract concepts. Yeah. Those concrete things run out pretty quickly. And then you've got to translate ideas, notions. Yeah. And the Bible's full of that sort of stuff, right? Right, and and it's full of uh, it's full of interpretation because it becomes that at some point, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, although the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible are very similar, right? Like when we talk about differences between the two, there's some exa- exaggeration there, sure, right? Um, but they saw it as significant because. When interpretive issues came to be, there would be things like emphasis on king and kingdom in the bishop's Bible. Why? (laughs) Because the Anglican church is headed Mm -hmm. and the Bible is commissioned by British royalty. Right. And they like that. Mm -hmm. They want people to see the concept of king mm-hmm. highlighted mm-hmm. because that's their role. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily that it's a bad trend. It's just you've got you got multiple options of how to render the word, and you're going to go with the one right. that lends itself better to your agenda. Right. And this is the thing that like I think people need to understand just in general about trans like translations in general is that like there is a lot of ambiguity sometimes mm-hmm. Th- like that's what you need to like it. So it's based on context. How is the word used elsewhere? You know, how, where is it in the sentence and how like that there are all these different things you have to do. Um, but like, like the example that you made of like blue to azul in Spanish, like English and Spanish, although not identical types of languages are drastically closer Mm-hmm. than English to Koine Greek or English to ancient Hebrew. There's a reason why people don't say, oh, it's all Spanish to me. Right, right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so so just for that, the word the mm-hmm. in English has, I've dropped the number, is it like 28 different variations in Koine Greek? Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, but you can, yeah, because... Let's just say yes, actually. More than <laughs> more than two dozen. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah. But anyway, the those in Geneva are there because they have been persecuted and exiled by royalty. Mm-hmm. So when there is a chance for ambiguity as to whether or not to highlight this as a kingdom or a congregation. Yeah. They use the word congregation. Or church or congregation. Even. Right. Yeah. And uh, and the Anglicans are going to insist on the word church mm-hmm. 
because church is part of kingdom and hierarchy and rule. It's the church, yeah. And so these aren't changes. I don't even think they're changes your average person would know. Mm. I don't even think they would recognize them. Right. But it's these subtle subliminary changes mm. that just sort of push one way over the other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is why we have the Anglicans who want to stay under the rule of the king. Mm-hmm. They want to use the bishop's Bible because it mm-hmm. has more of that color to it. Mm. And those who want to break away from that, the Puritans, yeah. prefer the Geneva Bible. Mm-hmm. And so James hears this and says, that's a legacy kind of a thing. Sure. Yeah, Let's sure. do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gives 15 rules mm-hmm. to the translation. Uh, one of those is whenever you have the opportunity between church and congregation, you better translate at church. Yep. <laughs> right? He comes with his own set of agendas. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, and, and he puts the thing into motion, mm-hmm. um, stating that it needs to be done from the best of ancient texts. Yeah. Yeah. So they use the best copies of the original languages that they have they also continue to consult earlier translations so they don't throw all the like the geneva bible and the bishop's bible into the garbage one of the things working with them as they as they go yeah most of what he is so everything is kind of based off of tyndale's bible Uh, like ultimately yeah yeah yeah. even even the bishop's bible and the geneva bible Mm -hmm. if you think back to william tyndale Mm -hmm. We're talking like linguistic studies have shown upwards of 80%, 83, 84% mm-hmm. of all of these Bibles come from Tyndale's Bible. Sure. Uh, and, and he's pushing hard in his 15 rules for a modeling after the Bishop's Bible. Mm. Interestingly enough, one of the things that he also insists on is very much begun in the mid-1500s during the translation of the Geneva Bible, verse and chapter oh, yeah. uh, distinctions. Yep, yep. Um, thank you. Yes, thank you, James. Thank you to <laughs> William Whittingham, <laughs> oh, I guess, who yeah. is the translator who divided the Bible into verse and chapter. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that is one thing that he does mm-hmm. call Include, for. He wants yeah. that, yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean... And so, just so people understand, like, the work is done by a large group. So, it's Mm -hmm. 47 scholars who were divided up into six different committees based um, at the different universities in England. Each each of these committees was designated a portion of Scripture. Interestingly enough, one of those committees translates the Apocrypha into English. Right. Although, um, so the Apocrypha is included, but it's separated as a distinct part, right? right? So it's it's not where the Roman Catholic Church would say um, it's on equal footing with the rest of Scripture. Uh, the Anglican Church would be like, no, but we have it there anyways, and, and you can read it, and there's benefit to reading it. Yeah, I keep a copy. I It's good history. Yeah, I studied it um, for intertestamental Judaism classes mm-hmm. on what was going on in between. Old and New Testaments, and it's, uh, yeah, it's some of it's super interesting. Right. You, uh, you can't fully know the background of the New Testament mm-hmm. without understanding it, the Maccabean y- Revolution. It really helps you understand the world in which Jesus lives yep. in, in a fresh way. So don't don't knock it all the time. Yeah, Book of Maccabees is, is a wild but ride. But you know, you know the New Testament 
or that the New Testament, the King James Bible is holy, the Holy Bible, <laughs> because it has committees. Right. <laughs> right? Like, how much more Protestant can you be? I know he's trying to walk the line, but when he sets up six committees. Yeah. Yeah. And in these committees, there there are a lot of guys who are high church Anglicans. Yeah. James is Baptist before Baptist was cool. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> or before it even existed. Or before it existed. The first Baptist. Yeah. You heard it here. Oh, man. <laughs> so so there there's high church guys part of these committees. So there's also those who kind of lean more puritan. They don't have they don't let any of the like the really puritan guys in on the translation process, mm-hmm. but they they let in some guys who are kind of le- leaning that way anyways. Yeah. Um they're not paid for their work, interestingly. Um although later a lot of them are going to get really good spots at universities and churches as recognition for mm-hmm. the work they did. Um, they begin in 1604, they finish 1608, then it goes to review more committees. So committees to check the work of the committees. So you're right. Baptist church. I mean, there, it's just there. The committee on committees, the committee that makes sure that the other committees are doing their committee work properly. Um, and then, yeah. And then it gets resolved and it gets sent back and forth and and it takes a couple more years, but by 16, which is another (laughs) man, the parallels by 1611, it's coming off the press though. Um, 1611 King James Bible. It's being sold. You could buy it for loose leaf, so with no cover, for ten shillings, or you could buy it bound for twelve, which is for like a skilled tradesman would be like a week or two's wages. Yeah, you know the the King James's personal printer purchased the right to print this, and he pumped it out. Oh, I bet. He pumped it out fast and made a ton of mistakes. Yeah, that's <laughs> So allegedly the first edition had some serious mistakes like leaving out the word not <laughs> and thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah. So there's it's actually a thing that there that like there's Bibles old King James that yeah have thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> <gasps> and and he oh. he ended up spending so much money trying to buy back these copies, mm. fix and replace copies, mm-hmm. that for for having this windfall, being in with James, getting the rights to print, he ends up dying in debtor's prison. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But that that first edition is often called the evil Bible. Yeah, or the wicked, the yeah. wicked Bible, the yeah. wicked Bible. Yeah, and like keep in mind too when when the King James version is first printed, like spelling in the English language wasn't entirely standardized yet. It's moving that way, but it's it ain't there. It's moving that way. So you would have even sometimes in the same passage a word, the same word, spelt slightly differently. Yeah, it's the very it's the very dawning of modern English. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I know the people now look at it and they're like, "That's modern English." Yeah, yeah, technically, yeah, because yeah. you can read it. That's how you know. Like right. you can you can figure it out with some help. That right. makes it modern English. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know when that'll change. It's got to be coming close post-modern to changing. Postmodern English. Yeah, but yeah. there are no rules in postmodern English. Yeah. Well, the difference too. How, though, how can your grammar be better than mine? <laughs> in postmodern English. It's just a free for all. <laughs> just a free for all. Hey, write I'm a good, word I'm however good, you want to write. I'm it. good for that. Yeah. Because that's what I do anyway. Just be your true self and and write words, whatever way you want. There is no there is no spelling bee in in our world today. It's oppressive. Um. Okay. So, 
<laughs> anyways, uh, one other thing, too, is unlike previous versions of the Bible, there's not a lot of illustrations. They have that whole, like, historiated initial, the whole, like, the fancy letter at the beginning of the mm-hmm. book or whatever. But apart from that, there's no, like, there's no, like, pictures. There are also no cross-references or footnotes. Nothing. That was something that mm. James explicitly wanted gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. No notes. But in, like, the second edition they come. <laughs> like, James <laughs> is still king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, they come in really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, and the King James Bible spreads really quickly. It quickly supplants those other Bibles. Like, like yeah. especially cons- like considering it being the ancient world, it doesn't take long. Um, the Scottish churches resist for a while and prefer the Geneva because, I mean, of course they do because they're Scottish, but sure. <laughs> even they flip to the King James um, not, not too long later. Yeah, one of the reasons it spreads so much is piracy. This mm. guy bought the rights to it, but once people had it, yeah. They're just printing their own. Yeah. And I mean, maybe some of them did a better job than he did because, I mean, obviously, like the Wicked right. Bible is case in point, Buddy, uh, Buddy did not do a great job. Yeah. And it, and it becomes the official Bible of the Americas. Yeah. Yeah. So the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, neither one really crossed the pond. Yeah. And true. the King James Bible does. Mm-hmm. And in the early Americas, before the Americas were... United States, mm-hmm. they were printing some in some instances as many a million a year. Wow, mm-hmm. wow, that's crazy. That's a lot of books. Yeah. yeah, and and so that's the history, I I guess to some degree, the initial history of the King James Bible. But the thing we have to like remember is that for some people, even today, the King James translation is viewed as an inerrant translation right i would be surprised pleasantly surprised if we have anybody listening who holds strongly to that view but i'm sure that many of our listeners have friends and family who who do or have at least heard of it oh sure yeah at the very least um i mean every every church in town is gonna or every town is gonna have at least one church that is like Mm-hmm. We only do the King James, and anyone who doesn't do the King James is a heretic who's going to burn in hell forever, right? Yeah. Um, I've I've seen a pastor in church throw a Bible across the church, pages flapping in the air, people gasping, whole thing in slow motion. I wasn't there. I saw it online. Mm. And as it crumples to the floor and everyone falls silent, he says... You probably think that that was a big deal, pastor throwing the Bible across the church. That's not the Bible. That's the NIV. (laughs) (laughs) It just looks like a Bible. Yeah. So let's give some credit where credit's due. For Mm -hmm. its time, King James Bible, great translation. Incredible. Yeah. Done, Done diligently with the best resources they had available. And was world changing. Yep. So like credit where it's due, the legacy of the King James Bible is not to be um, neglected and we should be thankful. We should like as English speakers in particular, we ought to be thankful to God for the King James translation. Right. It's in a blessing. S- in some ways, still untouched. Yeah. One it, of the things that they did 
one of the the final committees was a committee that would just sit and listen didn't read the thing just listening to it can i can i hear you read it and understand it mm. because most of england was illiterate right and does it sound beautiful mm. Mm. right w- when we have so many choices of words to describe a same thing does it just sing mm-hmm. right yeah and and there are times I grew up with the King James Bible. I still have the King James Bible that I got in like the first grade okay. sitting on my shelf. I used it as a reference this morning even. Nice. Um, and, and so this is not to say everyone needs to throw away their King James Bibles. No. no, no, no. But we need to do some history of why modern translations exist, mm-hmm. why we choose modern translations, Mm-hmm. And how you might respond to someone who says the King James Bible is the only Bible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? They, the statement is made on a couple of points. One, the point that there are words added and taken away. Yeah. Right? We were listening to a guy this morning talk about this. And <laughs> quoting he says, Revelation, yeah. So he's quoting Revelation, you know, no one should add or subtract from this book mm-hmm. uh, of Revelation. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of on the fence whether that means the whole Bible. I'm pretty sure it means the book of Revelation. I think in the context it means the book of Revelation. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Not that you should be adding or hacking things out of the sure, Bible, but sure. in context that verse is talking about yeah. the book of Revelation. His point was to say you need a reference point for what it means to add or subtract. Mm-hmm. Every other translation adds and subtracts because the King James is the reference point. Yeah. Therefore, the King James Bible is the only one that fulfills this passage, which is just to say this is the holy word of God because mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. right? It's a, yeah. it's a poor argument. Yeah. Uh, and that's not even what, like, that actually goes against the, like, the way that the King James Bible came about, Right. It was saying because they like they it, these were scholars who were like, OK, we're going to use the best manuscripts we have available. We're going to reference other translations. We're going to put something together mm-hmm. uh, the best that we can do. Right? right. That that that's what it was. Right. There's been other translations. We feel we can do better. This is better. Yeah. No one's calling it an infallible translation. No, no not initially. Not for a long time. Yeah. And then and then it becomes this this weird thing. And, and, and there's multiple questions you have to ask is like okay so it's the infallible word of god to the point where like greater than we could find it it almost seems as though you could find the original copy of john that john wrote with his hand and there are people who'd be like no the king james it's gotta be the king if it doesn't add up the king james is right Right, and, and that's it, that's it, why people love nauseating. to make the joke. Like, I use the King James Bible. If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons people stand on is they stand on the concept of textus receptus. Yes, yeah. Which in Latin means the received text, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which sounds very regal, mm-hmm. as if there were the original writings guarded and handed down. Um, I would point out a couple of things about the concept. If those existed conceptually... They would have been in the hands of the Pope, right? <laughs> who also received the passing down of the keys of the kingdom, and it would be a very Catholic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, King James-onlyists are anti-Catholic. 
on anti-Catholic, so many regards, anti-British. I mean, most of them, like, let's be real, like most of them exist in the United States. They're not down with, it's just so funny that they're like the King James Bible. It's like, right. You guys would have been the first to sign up for the boss in the Boston <laughs> tea episode, right? Like, it's just like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Texas Receptus is an issue. Texas Receptus starts with Erasmus. Mm-hmm. It's basically Erasmus saying, these are the Greek texts that I've put together in order to create the Latin Vulgate. Mm. Taking the best of what I have available to or me. Jerome, you're talking about Jerome. The Latin Vulgate. He wrote the Vulgate. Well, Erasmus later. Okay, did his own version. Okay, yeah, version, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but Erasmus saying, this is kind of generally what people are using. Right, right, right. We have with us today the UBS. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know about the UBS because it doesn't serve you very well. It's the Greek New Testament yeah. in Koine Greek, mm-hmm. right? I have a copy, mm-hmm. a couple of them. Yeah, I don't always use them as much as I pretend to. <laughs> uh, but it would be like saying the UBS is the Holy Word perfectly handed down. Right, right. It right. just lacks historical background. Right. So it's not a great argument. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, Erasmus openly stated there are sections missing that we back translate from Jerome's mm-hmm. uh, Latin. So the Textus Receptus is, in some ways, back translated mm. into the Greek and mm. not from original Greek sources. Right, right. Uh, the other argument is the argument for the multitude of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. The manuscripts, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that make up the... Uh, the King James Bible are the ones that we have the most of. Mm -hmm. But by now, our listeners are halfway through their PhD in church history. (laughs) And so, so what I want us to do is I want us to look at some differences between old and majority texts, Mm -hmm. because this matters, Mm -hmm. right? If you remember way back, way back the church starts spreading there's a church that comes up in alexandria northern egypt uh they do some battle with the gnostics in that area but the church grows really strong and it becomes a hub Mm. for the church Mm -hmm. while the church also spreads eastward into byzantium Mm -hmm. right um that there are lots of translations going on or transcript not translation transcription copying mm-hmm. of the text mm-hmm. going on in both places right as they are taking place in the byzantine area we see that taking place in a climate that is pretty much comparable to the americas in a lot of ways mm. seasonal climate mm-hmm. humidity those kinds of things. Uh, And so books mildew and they age. These libraries they're being kept in, the homes they're being kept in aren't climate controlled, Mm -hmm. right? So even in my climate controlled library, I have books that are aging, which just makes me feel old. (laughs) Um, And so so they had to be recopied because they were deteriorating. Right, right. And, and in some cases, we can trace back marginal notes mm-hmm. making their way into the mm-hmm. text. So 
we have the text being copied, and then the scribe off to the side just writes a thought mm-hmm. that hits him about mm-hmm. this. And then in the next edition, we can see it move as to, as to, yeah. like, be, to literally being between the lines. Yeah. And then you can watch it move into the lines. Mm-hmm. And even Erasmus notices this. Right, right. And, and says, I don't know exactly what to do with this. I'm just going to put it in here, but you need to know. Mm-hmm. That there are older editions that don't have this, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so we see that sort of thing happening in in the Byzantine area and the European world mm-hmm. as these books are deteriorating. Eventually, much later on, there is the advent of archaeology, mm-hmm. where we start digging around in the sand, mm-hmm. and we find in Alexandria and other places where there is not humidity, we find buried texts. I think at this point, the most famous would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Right? Uh, In Qumran. And these texts are much older, but there's not as many of them. Right. And so modern translations favor the older texts. Yeah. Because what you see in an older text ironically enough, are additions and subtractions, mm. right? We have a big stack of the older texts. Mm-hmm. It's not like one. Yeah. We have them in all kinds. They, they exist in all kinds. There's the Codex Sinaiticus, mm-hmm. for example, is a famous one. If you want to see a copy and you actually are in Stratford, come by my office. I have copies hanging on my wall. Mm. Um, but this is a full text. It's not first century by any means, but an older text. um, These kinds of things that allow us to go back and reference and say, hey, you know what? Consistently, this thing is missing. Right, yeah. And so that's why in modern translations of the Bible, if you open to John chapter 8, you will see a tag that says, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't have this story. Yep. The King James Bible doesn't have that note. Mm-hmm. It just has the story. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, it seems to be a Byzantine entry. Yeah. And something that has sort of made its way into the text. Yeah. We, we don't have to hide from this. No. And, and I think, here's the thing that I, I want to say, because... When we get to talking about variations in manuscripts and different philosophies of translation and all those types of things, for those who haven't been steeped in it, it can potentially uh, cause them to question their confidence in the Bible they mm-hmm. have, whether that's you know a New King James or an ESV or an NIV or whatever. Um, here's the thing that people need to understand. All those variations in the manuscripts, all those variations in the translations, you know, in, in, in all, all the different things that like even those scribal notes that made it their way in, none of it, none of it changes any foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. Absolutely. It's all peripheral. Right. It's all minor. We care about it because we want to get it as as correct as possible, but people need to understand that the King James or the NIV or the ESV or whatever stuff writ- written based on Byzantine text versus Alexandrian text. It's, it's the same faith. It's the same teaching. Right. So 
So that's that's really important for conversations with non-believers mm-hmm. who want to say the Bible is just like playing the game telephone, and you never know what you're going to get by the time you get to the end. Right, right. That's ridiculous. These things are being copied in mass, multiple copies going to the same place. People, you know, well, yours says something different than mine, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like they. The only way it would be like telephone is if they wrote a copy, passed it, a guy copied it, and then burned the copy that he had. Right. And he doesn't. He has to burn the, each word as he reads it. Right. Like he doesn't even get to go back. Right. Right. Um, it's not like that at all. There's mm. plenty of opportunity to check these things and to cross-reference these things. Mm-hmm. And there are huge meetings to mm-hmm. talk about whether or not these things are done right. So anyway, you're correct to say 99% of all things theological are a match, mm-hmm. right? The greater majority of differences, when we talk about textual variations, is that a comma or a period? Yeah. Should that letter be capitalized or not capitalized, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is kind of a moot argument when you look at a Codex Sinaiticus and there's no punctuation and yeah. every letter is capitalized, Right, right. Uh, which makes it really interesting to read. Uh, <laughs> so, so there are... There are these variations, but they're minor It's Im- and inconsequential. Mm-hmm. That's important for you to be able to know when you're talking with a non-believer who wants to come at the Bible mm-hmm. as being passed down accurately. Mm-hmm. It's important for you to know for your own faith yep. that you can trust the translation in your hands. Mm-hmm. And it's important for you to know when you're talking to a King James onlyist who's like, well, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. Yeah. And most of the time... The King James only argument what they're going to talk about is uh, the diminishing of the lordship of God. Mm. And there will be times in the King James Bible where it says the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And then in modern translations, it just says Jesus mm-hmm. or Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus, some variation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference just being the more ancient manuscripts don't use all of those words together in that instance. Mm-hmm. But all of your modern Bibles use that formula at some point oh yeah yeah it's still te- the niv and the esv still teach the lordship of it, christ right they're not making a <laughs> theological statement yeah or a theological adjustment mm-hmm. they're making a textual adjustment yeah and if kjv only pastors spend a bit more time cracking open modern translations rather than chucking them across the room it's absolutely they'd, true they'd probably realize that but. but let's talk about a couple of places where we do i, kn- I know we have like okay. less than a, okay. just it's over fine. a minute left it's fine a couple of variations where it is kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty three seventeen. Dust off your King James Bible. Look it up. The word unicorn is there. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. What? Modern translations call it a wild ox. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and it shows up as wild ox <laughs> at other places. But in Deuteronomy thirty three seventeen, the King James still prints unicorn. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve. Okay. This one is a little more significant. Th- mm-hmm. The last three mm-hmm. have some level of significance mm-hmm. to them. I, I do want to point those out. Isaiah, f- Isaiah fourteen twelve talks about the ruler of Babylon, mm-hmm. calls him the morning star. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that was translated into Latin, they used a Latin concept of the lamplighter. Okay. Which has been now translated down to Lucifer. Mm. And the King James 
interpreters took that, the translators took that and just wrote in the word Lucifer, mm. you will only find that translated as Lucifer in the King James. Interesting. Older texts, newer texts, nobody else wants to call it Lucifer. They translate it in such a way that it has become common knowledge that this is the proper name of Satan. Hmm. But that's not what it says. It says morning star. Right. Um, but hmm. they take from the Latin the concept as if it were a proper name. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And in my lovely little Schofield right here, there's a whole uh, excerpt about this being the proper name okay. of Satan. Okay. Um, which is which is just not the case. Right. Right. Um but does it matter theologically one way or the other? Not really. Nope. It doesn't change who Satan is. It doesn't change who Christ is or mm-hmm. what it is that he's done for mm-hmm. me. It's mm-hmm. inconsequential. Sure. Uh Philippians three twenty, maybe a little more. Okay. Uh in in Philippians Paul is writing to the a church in persecution from his place of persecution, mm-hmm. and he is encouraging them. One of the ways that he encourages them is to say, our citizenship is in heaven, mm-hmm. right? And we, we remember that. Mm-hmm. We are children of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Okay. Um, the King James Version says our conversation, not mm. our citizenship. Okay. Um, which is just a miss. Mm. It's a mistranslation. It just doesn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. But you can see where in a Bible study, sitting down, let's mm-hmm. exegete a passage together. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that our conversation is heavenly, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about things not of this world. Sure, it theologically aligns. Mm-hmm. Are you getting the hope? that Paul is trying to put forth to the Philippians at this point? No, mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. not. Um, so that's an, an issue. Lastly, 1 John 5, 7, there is um, a statement about the, the way that we are given witness. Uh, let me read it to you here. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Mm. Now, that's verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 is historically recorded as a marginal note. Right, okay, so that got added in. So it gets added in. It only exists in the King James Bible as far as modern English translations go, right? Mm. Uh, But we actually have the documents. This is what I was referring to earlier, that we actually have documents where we can watch it float from the margins to being between the lines to making its way into the lines, Mm. and we have Erasmus and other translators arguing this doesn't always exist, and we're not sure exactly what to do with mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But better to keep it because it is theologically sound. Sure, yeah. Than to be accused of dropping it. As we have discovered more ancient uh, writings, we see um, that marginal entry wasn't a correction, mm. it was a thought. Right. 
an innocent enough thought by a scribe that was at some point probably presumed to be an, oh my goodness, I've accidentally left this out. I'm just going to write it in over here mm. kind of a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's made its way in. Now, is it consequential? There are three that bear witness in heaven. Mm-hmm. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are one. Mm-hmm. We hold to that theologically. Sure. Uh, so is it a is it a problem that is there? Textually, yes, it's a problem. Theologically, no. Yeah. It's not. Uh, the King James Onlyist will say that modern translations are anti-Trinitarian because the one place where the Trinitarian formula exists mm-hmm. explicitly is taken out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I would point to the Great Commission and say, no, we right. baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There's your Trinitarian formula mm-hmm. intact right, right there. Right, right. Um, and the vagueness of verse 8 there in First John, mm. what exactly it means about the three that bear witness, mm-hmm. the blood and water and the vagary might point to a Trinitarian formula. Mm-hmm. It might be that there's some vague notion there that is, Trinitarian, mm-hmm. and, and that what is there in verse 7 is actually a comment explaining verse 8. Mm-hmm. Textually, does it exist? No. Yeah, yeah. Right? And and it's important. It's important for us not to hide from these things. Mm. The world wants to come out and be like, oh, you're just, you guys have been buried in your head in the sands. You don't know where you came from. You, there are these things that you didn't even know about, and and I want to use them to rattle your faith and all that kind of stuff, it's best for us to just leave it on the table and go, no, we've been talking about this for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and we're comfortable with where we landed, mm-hmm. right? The King James Bible, I, I'm, a, I'm really a nerd for Bible translations. <laughs> I just love the concept, and I get all excited, and that's why we're late. <laughs> but the King James Bible mm-hmm. is a cornerstone, Mm. in English Bible translations mm-hmm. and deserves its respect. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also, in opposition to what some would say, not inspired. Th- right. There are those who would go so far as to say, okay, maybe it doesn't match up with the old Greek, but in the same way God inspired the original authors, mm. the apostles, the prophets, to write the word of God. He inspired the committees. God inspired these committees. <laughs> and they came away with this sort of word of God mm. that doesn't even need its ancient texts huh. to support it. I wonder if I wonder if the committee that translated the part of scripture that these guys would not recognize as being divinely given the apocrypha were also somehow divinely ordained to perfectly translate the thing that's not perfectly from god yeah it just it just doesn't it falls apart that that whole argument just falls or what about other languages yeah right that's that's another one i always ask so like yeah what about people who speak french or spanish or any other language it's easy to contest those kinds of things i think but it's a what you're doing is you're insisting on accuracy and consistency in the argument, which is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> I can prove my point without accuracy or consistency. <laughs> um, and, and so the King James deserves its place, mm-hmm. but can be and has been improved upon. Yeah. It, yeah. It, we just have more information now than we had then, and mm-hmm. that information is not new information. Mm-hmm. It's older information. Yeah. Right? We've, 
we've had to do what they would have loved to have done. We've time traveled in some mm-hmm. ways yep. by God's grace mm-hmm. in preserving manuscripts. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I noticed when working with older Bible commentaries in sermon preparation, guys who were using the King James because mm-hmm. that's all they had. Oftentimes, some of these scholars will say, okay, the King James renders it this word this way, right? but this phrase should really be translated this way. And then you look it up in the NIV or the ESV, and it is. It's the way that that, that biblical scholar who only had the King James was saying, mm-hmm. King James puts it this way, but really it's, it's probably more, it should probably have take on this meaning. And, yep. and that those are things that are often picked up by more modern translators. Yeah, the translators there never felt, never made mention that they were the last to ever translate the Bible because mm-hmm. it was now done. Yeah. Um, revisions happened almost immediately. And even if you have the 1611 authorized version, it probably has some footnotes of change and stuff like that in it. Oh, yeah. And right? spelling and different things. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. I owe you eight minutes next time. Take care. Bye.